Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. From Vice Australia, this is Extremes with me, Julian Morgans. It's a show that explores the far ends of human experience. And today, we're going to hear from an Antarctic adventurer named Peter Bland. I felt this avalanche, then I heard it, and then I saw it. And it was just rock and rubble and ice coming screaming down the mountain. And I scrambled to get back to the safety of the tent, which was dug into the ice face. But I didn't make it. Peter Bland is a businessman and Antarctic explorer. And about 18 years ago, he was on an expedition to cross the Antarctic Peninsula when he was hit by an avalanche and washed down a crevasse. Now, Peter barely survived, and for the first time ever, he discovered he was kind of fallible. Today, we're talking to Peter about ego. I want to talk to him about how it can propel you to do really great things, but then on the flip side, how it can force you to live through some of the most trying and and horrible experiences. Growing up in the country, I just loved adventuring. I went to boarding school and I loved boarding school. And, you know, my way of being at school was I was very sporty. I loved after-school activities. I loved climbing and abseiling and all these things. And I was captain of outdoor activities and all that sort of stuff, you know, and I was right into it. One of the friends that I boarded with at boarding school, his name was Jay Watson. We were always catching up on a Thursday night to play tennis here in Melbourne and we were always hatching plans, you know. And one day I said to him, hey, Nobody's actually crossed the Antarctic Peninsula unsupported. How about you and I have a crack at a world first crossing the Antarctic Peninsula? It's this amazing, rugged frontier of the world. You wouldn't believe it unless you saw it. Like, it's so vast when you're sitting there as a six-foot man on a 47-foot yacht sailing through these ice flows and you're looking at it and literally you don't know if your eyes are playing tricks, whether that is actually the horizon or whether that's cloud matter because your eyes are just not used to seeing things so vast and so incredible. And here we were, two little dots, school buddies from boarding school, attempting to cross this peninsula from the western side to the eastern side, unsupported. We looked ahead 
and I could see there was a crevasse. Now, crevasse is an opening in the ice, and the average ice thickness in Antarctica is 3,000 metres. So three kilometres, which is like two miles, is the average depth of the ice in Antarctica. So when you see a wee little crevasse in Antarctica, it's not a wee little crevasse. It's a crack which goes for two miles deep. And I said to Jay, mate, it's not safe to cross that crevasse tonight. It's coming on twilight. It wasn't much darkness at that time of the year, but there was coming on. I said, let's set up our tent. Let's do the safe thing and not take on the crevasse now. So for the next hour or two, we dig in with our ice cliffs and we made a cave. And we dug our tent into a cave in case there was an avalanche, which is pretty much common sense for mountaineering in the mountains if it's prone to avalanches. So we dug our tent in, put the cooker on, and we made a meal. And we went to sleep. We woke up the next morning and we are set to go. Let's, let's go and do this last little ski down there. But you can't hear it because you're inside this cave. But when I opened up the zip of the tent, I could see the the wind was just howling down the mountain and ice and and rock was sort of just spewing in the air. And I said, mate, it's not safe to walk today. Let's stay put. I said, listen, I'll step out of the tent and I'll go and get the lunch. And he zips the tent up and I step out. And I was just, I pulled on my proper expedition boots because that's all I had to sort of wear and my jacket because of the wind, but I wasn't wearing that much underneath. I went over to the sleds there and a narrow little walk to get over there. And I remember peering over, bent over the kayak and as I was putting my hand in there to get the lunch I felt like, I don't know if you've ever been like on a trampoline or you can, you can feel the springs going up and down or sometimes when you know, if you're at an underground near a railway station you can feel trains before you can see them. Well it was like that for me with the avalanche. I could feel it, the rumble and then this roar And I looked up and I could see rock and ice and rubble coming screaming down the mountain like a giant ice cream scooper. And that's the last of my vivid memory. The avalanche grabbed me, it grabs the sleds, and it dragged us down the mountain. And it threw us into that crevasse, the crevasse which we'd seen the night before. And as I said before, a crevasse can go for two miles in thickness, and you can fall the whole distance. Well, in my case, I was incredibly lucky. Uh, I only fell 50 metres. Fifty metres is about 12 storeys of an office building and so I was dragged 50 metres down the mountain and then I was thrown over like a waterfall, like water falling over the, the, the lip of the you know, Niagara Falls and I fell vertically onto a hardened ice plate 
And that's where I landed, and that's where I lay, unknown to anybody. Jay, meanwhile, is back in the tent, and he's writing up his diary, and he opens up the zip of the tent, and he looks out, and he sees that both the sleds are gone, and so is his best mate. He looks up, and he knows there's been an avalanche. He didn't get caught up in it. He didn't even hear it, because he was so inside the cave that we dug, and the wind was howling anyway. And... He knows that I have to be in one of two places. Either I've been taken by that avalanche and I've been thrown in the crevasse and I'm dead, or I've been taken by the crevasse and I've been dragged down the bottom of the mountain and I've been buried at the bottom of the mountain 12 kilometres down there and I'm dead. He's willing to explore the former, which is I've been taken by the crevasse. So we've only got one rope left now because all the rest of the gear was in the kayaks and they were all taken. He's got no ice screws left because they were taken with the kayaks. He can only then use the rope that he's got and secure it to our skis, which we were using as pegs for the front of the tent, and he goes over to the edge of the crevasse, which is 50 metres away, holding the tail of the rope. And he peers over and all he can see at the bottom which goes on forever, a little ledge, about big enough for a tent. He can see the blood-splattered body of his friend. So he's found me. I describe Jay as like the leader with no title. He's a leader that came down there and he took his ice pick, my ice pick, his crampons, and my friend from school did a one-way trip down a crevasse to a dead friend with no hope and no way of knowing how he himself would get out of there. No hope or knowing about how, when the next avalanche would come and bury him as well alongside me. right up until the last second he says wasn't until he was literally kneeling over me and putting his hands on my chest that he realised that my chest was rising and falling and I was alive I had blood coming out of my nose and my ears and my mouth I had a big indentation in the front left hand part of my head so I had brain damage, front left hand level damage from the fall he assumed that my back was broken because my body was all contorted and twisted, almost like a 180 degrees twist in my body, with my legs facing one way and my body facing another way. For the next three days, Jay kept me alive by crunching up food and mushing it up and heating up hot water and feeding me with a straw. And for the next three days, he was able to set up the tent down below, cover me in a sleeping bag. I wasn't able to talk, but apparently I was able to communicate with my eyes. So, you know, one blink for yes and two blinks for no. 
and he kept me alive. And I know it was a belief that had me survive, not so much the physical food and the warmth. It was a belief that came from my friend being with me, giving me the hope and the leadership that I needed to pull me out of that crevasse. We had a scheduled radio call every second day at 2000. He sets up the radio and he goes up top there at 2000 the next day and he makes the call. Roger, who answers the call, says, Well done, Jay, Pete, well done, you made history. We've got a chocolate cake and we've got champagne and ice for you. And Jay says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Pete's been taken by an avalanche, his back's broken, and we need help. Well, then it started a whole international rescue mission. After all this rescue operation, the guys had to then drag me down the mountain to get to an area where it was safe for a helicopter to land. So they go ahead and do this. And Andy tells the story that as they're dragging me, they're going along there, and it's going along all right, and then they felt it was really, really hard, and and they're going along for another 10 minutes, and then they look back, it was really hard. They go, God, is that, you know, the ice must have got really hard or the snow must have got thick. Gee, why, is it, why is he so heavy all of a sudden? And after 10 minutes of continually pulling me through this heavy, heavy stuff and giving it extra effort, they turned around and, and Nigel says, he's dead. He's turned over, he's upside down and he's dead. And they've been dragging me upside down <laughs> through the snow with my face <laughs> like a plough, flipped the sled over and they found I was alive. <laughs> this is a tough bugger. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. We're just going to pause here for one second, because if you're enjoying this podcast, you should really check out another from Vice Australia. This is called Violent Times, and it's hosted by my friend and colleague, Mahmoud Fazel. Mahmoud has run a really fascinating series of interviews with people who have witnessed and participated in violence. And a lot of them are actually really quite notorious figures in the Australian crime scene. And he talks to them about their relationship with violence. Here's a quick preview here. Everyone who tried to cross over was being killed. And my friend who was right in front of me, and she was about to cross, she got hit by a sniper. Other people in the platoon, they were all started to fall. The guy who recruited me, who was still there, and another person's head exploded next to me. And I was still there, right behind all of that. Peter was eventually rescued by a ship and taken back to a hospital in Chile. 
And there he discovered he had this thing called post-traumatic amnesia, which is when the brain basically blocks out really stressful events. So that whole time that he was down in the crevasse and, and getting pulled out, Peter was conscious for all of that, but he doesn't remember it. So for him, his first memory is, is being told in hospital that he had brain damage. So your next memory is you're in hospital, it's six days later, you're in Chile, you've got brain damage, every bone in your body is broken. Can you tell me what that's like? It was in King George Island uh, without an anaesthetic that I woke up from this PTA, this post-traumatic amnesia, and I literally had two guys holding me down and then two people pulling my left leg out from where it was stuck out of my behind and putting my femur back in its socket. Now, unfortunately, my femur had been out of its socket for six days by now. So I got a condition called avascular necrosis, so my bone died, like chalk. Like my bone became chalky after time. It's like getting a Nilex uh, hose and bending it over, and the blood and the water can't flow through the hose. The blood couldn't flow through the veins and the arteries to my bone. The recovery process for me was arduous and long, and had a lot of ups and downs uh, with operations that I've had to try and make my leg better since then because literally the top of my femur became like chalk. It's horrific, of course, right? But what was most horrific about it was the denial that I went into that I had brain damage because a guy like me doesn't get brain damage, according to my books, right? And I denied it, and I denied it, and I denied it. But I had brain damage, and I had front left hand labeled damage. The head in front of my skull was caved in. My knowledge of what a damaged brain looks and feels like and what kind of ramifications yeah, that yeah, has yeah. are really slim. I, okay, I don't, good know, point. I don't know anything about that area. Yeah. So can you describe to me what it's like to actually have brain damage? It's like being constantly drunk, uh, out of control. It's like having not slept it's like not having slept for three days and being drunk and pretending like you're there. I was aware that I was foggy and I was slow and my tongue was very heavy and I couldn't speak. And friends who have seen TV footage of me immediately after the avalanche and so forth said, oh, Pete's gone. What's the process of rehabilitation? Part of my recovery was my memory process. So I had to give myself some small wins. So I started memory exercises and visualization, and I then got really, really good at remembering names and numbers, and I could count cards, all these things that I couldn't do before. I learned the technique behind them. I gave myself goals, so writing lists was really a big part of my recovery. So I became really dependent upon my lists, and I still use them. Okay. And when you say you were keeping a lot of lists and writing a lot of journals, was that also simply because you found it hard to remember things? Yeah. So I couldn't remember a thing. So you were like the guy from Memento. My life was like that. My life was being told from others to me. And I was like the guy observing my life from a distance going, really? I could see photos of me and I go, wow, did I do that? I was like two or three people away from me having to rediscover me. I'm wondering how your, your friends feel about this, this transformation. So Jay was your best friend. He mm. saved your life. He was friends with that guy who you now 
say you don't like very much? I mean, how do you reconcile that in your head? Good friends can see past the arrogance, right? So I have had this discussion. It's part of my whole spiritual development in these recent years has been actually going back to my friends and asking that exact question to their face. And it takes time and it takes courage to really go there and say, you know, what are these characteristics of me that you like? What are these characteristics of me you don't like? One friend of mine, Stewie, said, well, okay, to be honest, Blandy, um, I, I can't tell you how many people that I've been paddling with who meet you for the first time who when you walk away saying, God, what an arrogant so-and-so. God, who the hell's he? And then Stu would say, actually, you've got to get to know Blandy. He's got a heart of gold. He's got a heart of gold. And he would do anything for anybody. But what I was putting off was this machinery. What the guy did and how he contributed and, and to people and to my family and to others, I'm super, super uh, have admiration for what that guy achieved. What I don't respect is the machinery which was running him as his first greeting t- card to everybody he met. I was a non-stop prover, like, like I'd meet you for the first time and i go, hi, Julian, hey, you, you, uh, what's your credit card number? I'll prove it to you, I can remember your number, you know, whatever. I was this annoying kid that wanted to prove to you that I was smart again. That's all you really got from me. Did uh, constantly trying to remember people's credit card numbers uh, really annoy everyone? Totally, big time, especially those closest to me. Peter says that it was his wife who found it particularly challenging to rediscover him. And they eventually broke up and got a divorce. I'm curious about this new character who was trying to memorize things constantly, a bit obsessive, a bit angry. How did this affect the relationship with your wife? Oh, it was, it was awful. Absolutely awful, the poor thing. I had one agenda, which was to get back in my game. Like, who I was in the world was to be this successful guy on the stage, speaking, selling promoting, you know, this guy. And I wasn't that, and she had to live with that guy. So um, they reached a point where she just fell out of love with me, you know. She loved the guy that she married, but that wasn't the guy that she was currently living with. Quite a different guy, like a personality flip. The eyes were still blue, the face was still the same, but what was going on inside was nothing but this driving, angry machine that had to prove that he was good enough. If you want to see... A lion, king of the jungle, crawl on the floor like a sickened puppy. That's what it looked like. A clawing, crawling, crying baby who had nothing but pleading and begging. And that's who she left. You know, I was so caught up in getting rich quick because that was my answer if I could get rich quick doing whatever could make me a dollar it would save the day it would get my wife to love me again I was totally just a self-justifying irresponsible little boy who didn't get his way this guy that you became after the accident uh, do do you attribute that to, to brain damage or do you think that was just bruised ego I think the big driver was a bruised ego with a brain-damaged operator. And in my case, my ego was so damaged because I had all these views about who I had been, super successful, North Pole, South Pole, all these things that I'd done, beautiful wife, great kids, big house, BMW, all these things. I thought that was me. When that didn't match to who I was in life right now with what I was doing, it didn't make sense to me. Okay, so this point here 
where your wife has walked out, you're still in this process of rehabilitation. Would you describe this as rock bottom? Yeah, I would describe the divorce proceedings as a crevasse and an avalanche deeper than any crack in Antarctica. Yeah, it took me deeper and further and uglier and darker to a place that I never, ever want to revisit. Five years in the family federal court fighting about money and kids until at the end I had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, I was done, you know, and I was sleeping in my car at the back of uh, Brighton Beach so I could just see the kids. I would sleep in the car, not, not every night, but uh, about three nights a week. And no money, but a lot of debt, and I really was lost. And I thought I'd recovered, but then the, the avalanche that took me this time was bigger than anything I'd had before. So, yeah, that was the darkest moment in my life. All this time, Peter had been desperately trying to rebuild his image as a businessman. He'd been selling cosmetics and hair products and that kind of stuff, just doing it door-to-door. And for Peter, this was really the lowest point. I was so lost. I had no idea who I was. I was a formerly fairly successful businessman. And I put a lot of people at risk through my selfish behavior. And all I had out of all that was debt and guilt. I thought, well, I've got a solution for it. I'll get rich quick. So what I decided to do was to sell network marketing, hair care products, and facial moisturizers. You can imagine what an odd fit that is for an Arctic explorer. I collapsed after a day in the city trying to sell my network to a friend of mine at Macquarie Bank. And I come home that night and I say to my then wife, hey, I'm a bit sore here around my hip operation. Can you have a look? She pulls down my tracksuit pants. She sees a giant big red swelling. And she says, wow, you, you got to call the doctor. you got to go into hospital. And I say, nah. I call the doctor. He says, come into hospital. I say, okay, I'll be back in three hours. Like an hour's drive in and an hour in the hospital. Now I drive back. Anyway, three weeks goes past and I'm still in the same hospital. And the reason I collapsed was because of a blood clot. I think one of the things I really want to explore through the idea of extreme situations yeah. is this idea that they kind of reveal you to be who you really are yeah. at your core. Yeah. In your experience, is that is that right? Absolutely. So for me, the biggest part of my self-discovery has only occurred because of the avalanche. And I can thank the avalanche for that. Because but for the avalanche, you'd be left with a very egocentric, arrogant show-off who was on a mission to prove to the world that he was good enough. And he wouldn't have stopped. He would not have stopped. It seems pretty likely that everyone at some point in their life, they're going to butt up against some horrible experience or something that's going to really test them. What sort of, uh, what sort of advice would you, would you offer for someone who's feeling like they're really at rock bottom? That is such a great question. You know, I teach that you're all going to be taken by an avalanche or a divorce, metaphorically. Now, it mightn't be in those formats, but it is there. So befriend your fear and see that fear is nothing but the past trying to protect you in the future. That's all it is. Point to fear. What is it? Where is it? Is it it my shoelaces? Is it my socks? What is fear? So it's nothing but the past trying to protect you in the future. So when you can really get present to that, you can unpack that and go, okay, so when was fear born? And then you can unpack that. And you can see it was probably a 10-year-old boy who felt he wasn't good enough. Or whatever it is. In my case, that was the case, actually. The second point I say is that cause motion is the only emotion you need. Having a cause which is bigger than you, 
so big that it stirs you inside. It creates an emotional response because human beings are it, essentially we are energies in motion. Until you turn your life into a cause, all you'll ever have is what you've got. Turn your life into a cause, a cause which is bigger than you. Something I've been wondering through all this is what what compelled you to do all of these crazy expeditions? You know, why why go and try to walk the length of the Antarctic Peninsula? Why do this stuff? I admired my father, you know, very much. He was a self-made man, born in the Depression, ex-champion university boxer, a county court judge, and I admired him greatly. However, I also despised him and I resented him. I didn't know this at all, that when I was 10 years old, Dad had me do my exercises and I only resented him for making me do them. I made him wrong for making me do them. What I was left with for most of my life was I wasn't good enough. I didn't measure up to a man that I admired greatly. And so I spent the rest of my life going to the South Atlantic Pole, the North Atlantic Pole, and crossing oceans, all these things I did, trying to prove that I was good enough. I mean, it's almost a, a trope these days that, you know, we all carry around our various childhood baggage. Do you think it's possible that if you felt like you'd had your dad's respect and love from a young age, would you have gone and ended up at the bottom of a crevasse? I don't think that I would have ended up at the bottom of a crevasse. doesn't mean I wouldn't have gone to Antarctica. I never should have made that call to turn right down that ice face into that avalanche-strewn field where we went. That was an obsessive 10-year-old boy in charge of an expedition that did that, not a mature 30-year-old experienced man. And you reckon you did that because you wanted to prove something to your dad? Yeah. Yeah, and I risked the lives of others uh, in the process. Peter's in a much better place these days. He's rebuilt his business. He's remarried. Talking to him, you'd never know he'd suffered brain damage. And as you can kind of hear, he's, he's pretty philosophical about the past, even if it occasionally haunts him. So you don't wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat dreaming of crevasses and avalanches and that kind of stuff? No, I had one moment about four years after the avalanche and I went up to Mount Buller for a ski. I'd been up for a speaking engagement and I went on for a day skiing. It was the first time I'd seen snow since the avalanche and I actually hadn't given credence to what impact it would have on me. And I don't like wasting money, but I bought a day pass and I had to not use it. I had one run, I went out and I got the shakes and cold sweats and the whole thing. I was like, whoa, this is so weird. So I went back to the car and I put on this meditation CD that I had then and I meditated through it and then I went back and I skied the afternoon. Jay in particular, you guys still friends? Of course. Dear, dear friend. Don't see enough of him now. He now lives in Canada. He's uh, driving a ferry in, uh, in Vancouver. I understand that you named your son after Jay. Yeah, so little Angus was born about 10 months after the avalanche, so not everything was broken. We named him Angus J. Robert Bland after Jay, and he's his godfather, and he's a great godfather to my son and a dear friend to me. Well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've really enjoyed talking with you, and I think it's amazing how honest and reflective you've been about this crazy experience. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show.
Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Extremes, just go to vice.com or iTunes. If you're interested in hearing more of Peter's story, he's also got a book. It's called A Step Too Far, Peter Bland and the Obsession of Adventure. This episode of Extremes was hosted by me, Julian Morgans. It was produced by a new Hasbold, edited and mixed and mastered by Jeff O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and our post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. Next week on the show, we're speaking to a guy who woke up from a coma speaking fluent Chinese. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.